Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio here with you again. We're, oh boy, we're fast approaching 450 episodes of this podcast. Who would have thought, uh, not me for sure, every single day when I uh, think about what we've accomplished, I'm, I'm blown away and then uh, I get another guest to come on or a set of guests and I'm like, okay, wait a second, is this real? The, the, this can't be real, but it is. And uh, we're so happy that uh, we, we have uh, an audience interest in continuing these episodes. We've interviewed about 140 college university presidents at this point on our way to 200. It's just on and on and on. Of course, visit www.edupexperience.com for your listening pleasure. Find what you want when you want it because we categorize every, every let me try that again. See how that's how good I am on the microphone. We categorize everything community colleges, private colleges, public colleges. You can find exactly what you're looking for. Uh, today, I'll tell you exactly what you're looking for. You're looking to hear from the two guests I have with me today who are absolutely incredible. In fact, I could not find, I could not find the appropriate sound effects to introduce them. Um, so I downloaded some things um, and I went through some old sounds and I think I've found the appropriate ones here. Um, so first I'm gonna bring, uh, here he comes, ladies and gentlemen, his name is Jonathan Durko and he's president and co-founder of the Association of College and University Educators. Yeah. Ooh, there he is. Jonathan, what's happening? <laughs> hey, Joe, thank you so much. Great, great to be here. And of course, uh, an esteemed uh, gentleman uh, with many, many years in higher education and uh, even more important than that, incredible years of impact within higher education. And literally, I spent time uh, going, how do I appropriately introduce him and I thought applause now nah, he's gotten too many of those I'm gonna give him an even deeper oh yeah here he is oh uh, 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 yeah his name is Dr. <laughs> Eduardo Padron and he is president emeritus at Miami-Dade College oh uh, yeah Eduardo how are you doing fine my friend good to see you so I I don't know how'd you feel applause or the oh uh, yeah what do you like better oh uh, yeah <laughs> that sounds good Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. I am so honored to have you both here today. Thank you for coming. You know, higher ed's a funny, funny animal these days, uh, Dr. Perdona. I want to start with you to kind of set the stage for us. You know, uh, student success is uh, more important now than it's ever been. There's the future of work. We have the battle for talent. We have the value of higher ed in question. We have a resurgence of community colleges in the United States because of of all of the things I just mentioned, set the stage for us a little bit. Where is higher ed today? What are what are some of the key learnings we've had and key issues for the future? I think the best way for me to uh, describe that is to say that higher ed is in transition. Uh, before I would have told you, uh, as I have said many times before, that higher ed in general, and there are always notable exceptions, uh, is about the only industry that's still trying to get into the 21st century. I think that uh, that's, that's a reality and I think most of my colleagues uh, would agree with that. And yet the irony is that higher ed today is uh, more important and more necessary than ever before. If you think about just uh, not too long ago, uh, mid uh, 20th century, etc., cetera, uh, you would find that only uh, the very few uh, the elite, 
the privileged ones would go to college or universities. And that was perhaps okay because the majority of Americans could go into offices with, with little education, could go into offices with mostly factories and make a good wage that would allow them to uh, reach middle-class status and be able to achieve the American dream. Well, uh, that's less and less today possible because uh, today uh, the level of knowledge and skills that are necessary to get the new jobs that are being created uh, in our economy, uh, it's, it's, much, it's, a, it's at a much higher level. And uh, what happens is that unless you have uh, a credential or a degree from college, uh, it's very difficult to achieve middle class and to be able to achieve the American dream. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if you look at the statistics, about two thirds of all the new jobs that are being created in the United States today require that uh, post-secondary credential. And uh, so that's, that's my concern and that should be the concern of a lot of people because for us to keep our leadership as a nation, we need to make sure now uh, that most Americans will have the opportunity not only to have access to college, but to be able to succeed in college. And that's where, uh, you know, making sure that we all concentrate, put students at the center of decision making, that we concentrate on making sure the students succeed uh, is more important than ever. Yeah, you know, you brought up so many thoughts for me and, you know, Miami-Dade College, where uh, being a massive community college, helping a, a tremendous, I think 90, 100,000 students somewhere in, mm -hmm. in that range. And you think about the future of work and the skills development and this this conversation that I know you're hearing of, well, you don't need college anymore. You, you just, you know, the college isn't worth it. And there's this competing anti-intellectualism movement that makes people, I, I, frankly, I find it very confusing because I am a huge believer in education and what it can do for not just your skill development, for your whole life. Um, Short-term gain, but long-term, really long-term gain. Many people have been really focused on that short-term gain and not looking at what the long-term gain is for higher education. And so then somebody comes on and goes, well, you know what, you could be Elon Musk. You can just go on and start your own business, internet company, and you know maybe, maybe there's one Elon Musk for every 10 billion people that will come through. How do you frame that? that well, um, dissonance conversation of higher ed and its value? Well, first of all, it's interesting that most of the pundits and people who tell you college is not for everyone, uh, basically they're talking about other people. They're not talking about their children and grandchildren. Yeah, who if they're gonna really send to college. In, if you really look deep into them, uh, not only they're spending a lot of money making sure that their children uh, get the best education possible. So I think that argument uh, holds no water. Uh, I, I really feel that, uh, you know, uh, there are many, many things in, in, in the higher education uh, world today that uh, really have to change. And some institutions are doing better than others. But the fact of the matter is that many of the old ways no longer apply. And if we want to be able to uh, maintain the students and be able to take them to the point where they graduate, uh, we have to really uh, uh, review again the practices that, that we include in, in higher ed, teaching being uh, one of them. Uh, 
you know, the student success movement is, is something that uh, started a few years back. And a lot of institutions are working very, very hard uh, to really concentrate on, on making the students successful. Very different from my time as a student where it was swim or sink. And the responsibility, 100% of the responsibility for my success was on me. Uh, nobody else claimed uh, to have, uh, you know, an equal, being an equal partner in my success. But uh, what's happening is, and, and the, the real dilemma here is that most of the responsibility for a student success has been uh, quite uh, one-sided. And what I mean by that is that most of that accountability and responsibility has been placed on the student affairs sides of the house. Uh, and uh, with no uh, real participation of the academy, or, uh, you know, the academic affairs, no real participation of, of the faculty. And, and that I think is, a, is, a, is a where the big mistake is, is taking place because the faculty are the essence of the institution. And many faculty uh, take pride in, in, being, in doing what they do. But I'll give you my own example. Uh, I got a, a teaching job full time uh, with a PhD in hand in economics. And two weeks prior to uh, my teaching starting, I was given uh, two textbooks that I needed for the courses and my schedule of courses. So I knew Yikes. when the courses were to be taught, et cetera, et cetera. I had no training, no experience with teaching. Yikes! So I submitted myself uh, to uh, those students uh, who, uh, in, in reflecting back, I could have done a much better job in teaching them and engaging them in the learning if I had had some uh, uh, understanding of what makes uh, teaching effective. So that uh, is not much different today, to be totally honest with you. And I think that's where we need to put most of our efforts because uh, we have wonderful faculty who are experts in their field. They have uh, doctorates and masters in chemistry, sociology, mathematics, whatever, you name it. But that does not necessarily make them effective teachers. And I think engaging the faculty and providing the faculty the opportunity to assume responsibility for the success of the students is one of the major uh, issues that we're facing today. 100%. Oh, Jonathan, your voice is just a tad raspy. I, I wanted to bring you into the conversation there, um, but thank you for agreeing. Uh, appreciate it. T talk to me about AQ a little bit. Yeah, let me clear my throat. Uh, I can't believe uh, it was it was that raspy, Joe. Right. Thank you, thank you. There, appreciate that. Um, Joe, I, I sometimes I feel like the luckiest man on the planet. Um, that can't be because I've got you two guys here, so that's got to be me. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, uh, for today, you can have that, that right, uh, right. honorific. The story of AQ started as a conversation, just like this in many ways. Eight years ago, a dear friend of mine, Matthew Goldstein, who led the City University of New York system and achieved incredible things over his tenure, in conversation with Matt, in conversation with Eduardo, in conversation with Elmira Mangum from Florida A&M University, where she was president at the time. And we were looking at this success agenda, the success movement. And Eduardo's point was spot on, is spot on, was the insight we had eight years ago. So many of the important 
necessary interventions to help students succeed were happening outside of class. Think advising, think support, think uh, use of data analytics. And our insight was we have to get to the heart of the matter. Those things may be necessary, but they're insufficient if we're gonna meet the levels of education that the country needs, that the economy needs. That's our mission, that's our duty to students. So we said, how can we get to the heart of the matter, support faculty in a way that strengthens their teaching? Because we know when faculty use evidence-based practices, and there's a 40-year literature behind this, when they use these practices, we see persistence go up. We see mindsets open. We see achievement rise. And Joe, we see equity gaps close. We've seen it in our 19 studies and counting where we've eliminated achievement gaps between Pell eligible and non-eligible students. We've cut in half equity gaps between black college students and their peers. So we know this works. The question became how can we center faculty and teaching at the heart of the success movement. That's our mission. Our mission is student success and equity through quality instruction. We've been at it for eight years. We work with over 350 college and university partners. Wow. We're, su we're supporting about 20,000 faculty, 10,000 who have earned and hold an AQ certificate. And that means that they not only have learned but they are implementing, they are changing their teaching practices with the approaches that we know work. Um, so I feel pretty lucky to be able to wake up every day and, and work on this. I could talk about it for more than the time we have, but let me stop there. Well, we have you guys for three and a half hours, I think. Amazing. Right? So we're, we got plenty of time. Um, I'm going to come back to you, Jonathan, but I want to uh, go to you, Dr. Perjone, again and, and, and talk about what's wrong a little bit more. So, so set the stage for us teaching is important, right? And you talk about student success and faculty have um, the most direct impact on students through their entire educational journey. You can recruit them, you can finance them, you can support them, but ultimately the person that they're interacting with in those classes, whether it's online or it's on ground, mm -hmm. is the person that's gonna be most directly involved in that student's success. And you said earlier that teachers aren't really prepared the, the, the faculty aren't prepared to teach as much, maybe as much as they would be prepared to be an SME in their field, or mm -hmm. um, what's wrong with the teaching framework as it exists right now? And what do we do about it? Well, I think what's wrong definitely is that reward system. Uh, we have reward systems at colleges and universities that basically the emphasis is on research and, and, and publishing. And, uh, unless we change the reward system to really identify and reward teachers for being the best that they can be in terms of getting the students engaged in the learning process and the success of the students, uh, nothing really is gonna change. We need to invest in faculty. We need to invest in faculty in ways that they have the opportunities to learn, uh, the, uh, you know, get the ability to, to use uh, practices that are being proven effective in the classroom and uh, that changed the whole thing. But as long as we keep uh, rewarding faculty 
uh, tenure, as well as uh, changing rank, whatever, based on how much research you conducted, how many books you published, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're not gonna see a significant change. And that is something that some institutions are beginning to, to learn. And that I think are gonna make a difference if in fact, uh, we wanna go to the essence of what these institutions are and need to be, which is to be engines of economic mobility because that's what the university main function should be and nothing else. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm the optimist, I, I believe that, but it's going slow, but I, I feel that uh, the new realities of the uh, knowledge economy are gonna force colleges and universities uh, to really uh, hurry up and, and being able to implement changes that will address that issue. Do you think that institutions by and large focus enough on the professional development, you know, as a, as a and, and the reason I ask this is through my career in higher ed, you always hear, well, faculty professional development, we got to invest in faculty professional development. But sometimes there isn't as much of a system around that with specific outcomes and inputs and outputs like we would for a student, you know, where there's an input, there's an output. And what are the learning outcomes that we expect? And how are we going to put those into place? And it's more of a an additive like how we, we've got to we've got to do this and but there's the structure fails so i mean is that true or am i making this up well, uh, it's possible that i that i'm making it up but but then you know is there a true focus as there needs to be uh, uh, joe we've seen that we've had to turn this from a nice to have into a need to have you know i think i think that's what what you're getting at and key to that has been to show very explicitly with quantitative data, the value that returns to a faculty member in a more rewarding job, to a student in a better education and a degree, to an institution with increased graduation rates, retention rates, and by the way, the associated tuition revenue from increased retention and completion. But to make those connections very clear between investment in your faculty and the outcomes that all these different uh, parties seek. Uh, but it's funny, you know, when, when we started, uh, we, we worked with many pilot institutions. We worked with some of the best teaching centers and teaching center directors, subject matter experts, faculty, to build experiences that faculty would love, a learning design where faculty would see themselves, learn, change their behavior, leading to measurable impacts. And, you know, we naively thought, build it and uh, they will come. How your head thinks that all the time. <laughs> enter, enter the sound of crickets. <laughs> and I, what I we, should have downloaded that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, what we, you know what, we quickly realized and made a quick pivot was simply having a better faculty development mousetrap isn't enough. And what we learned and what we do is sit down with institutional leaders, stakeholders, faculty leaders, faculty to develop a holistic plan that starts with their strategy. What are your goals? Uh, let's identify pain points, areas of high dropout, you name it and see how support to faculty is part of that strategy. Second, with an eye to equity, to make sure that 
any of this work is closing equity gaps and advancing the equity imperative. Third, we spend a lot of time talking about approach to make sure that this isn't a nice add-on on a weekend, but job embedded, consistent, regular, that's the kind of meaningful experience we know actually leads to, to change. Fourth, and there are five, so I'm almost done. Fourth, that the work is evaluated, both the leading indicators, changes on the faculty side of equation and the lagging indicators, changes on the student side of the equation. Those data are gold because it allows us to show the value to turn this from a nice to have into a need to have. And the last domain that we give a lot of thought to is culture. How is all this happening in a way that celebrates your faculty, deepens their expertise, prizes their work as part of student success as opposed to something off on the side or separate from student success? You put those five things together and it gets to the kind of transformation that Eduardo was doing at Miami-Dade long before AQ existed and the kind of transformative partnerships we're forming with colleges across the country. Hey everybody, head over to www.edipexperience.com, our website where you're gonna find all of the episodes that we've recorded categorized so that you can ensure that you're spending your time listening to the podcasts that are most important to you. You're gonna see the reviews of our podcast, the shows in our network, our partners, and a section on starter episodes. If you're new to the Edip experience, listen to those starter episodes and get a feel for how the podcast has evolved over time and our impact in the world www.edipexperience.com. Jonathan, do you think that there are colleges and universities that are not equating faculty teaching readiness with student success? Is it something you have to convince people into at this point, or is it just widely accepted or maybe not practiced all the time? Well, I think it depends back to Eduardo's point on your goals and your incentives. If you're an elite institution, where research is the coin of the realm, and you are selective enough to admit students who are gonna do well no matter what because of their own preparation, their own work ethic, because of the peer effects. If you've got a 95% on-time graduation rate, you likely don't believe the quality of instruction is a question. Now, I would challenge that because like Eduardo, I didn't get any pedagogical preparation in my own training as a PhD in political science. But in those elite situations, it's not a felt need. It's not a felt problem. Moving into different segments of higher ed, absolutely. We find every institution is hungry and faculty are welcoming the opportunity to strengthen their craft, to do better by their students. Wow, I love it. Well, you know, you guys caught me um, on, a, on a day when I like to play games here at the Edip Experience. We're gonna play a game today um, called, this is Higher Ed Word Association with your contestants, Eduardo Padron and Jonathan Gurko. And this is a gentleman where you win no money here at the Edip Experience. So unfortunately we have no money, so you can't win, but we can get your incredible insights, which means we all win. Um, and so I'm gonna give you guys a word and you're going to give me the first set of thoughts that come to your mind. These are higher ed association words. And uh, we're going to start with you, uh, Jonathan. 
And here we go. You ready? The first word to you, Jonathan, is assessment. What comes to mind? Not yet. May I elaborate? Yeah, you get to elaborate. This is your time. <laughs> well, in our work with faculty, you know, we know there's a lot of talk about evaluation and job performance. And our view is that it's premature to be evaluating and assessing anybody in any field before they've had the opportunity to develop those skills. So before we jump into measures and assessments of teaching quality, let's ensure faculty have foundational preparation and support. We care all about quality, but thinking we'll get more of it merely by assessment, by job performance and evaluation, uh, that's not gonna get us there. We saw that created a debacle in K-12 and no need to bring that to higher ed. Well done. Okay, Eduardo, your word is equity. Huh. One of my favorite words. We need more of it. Uh, frankly, that is something that many institutions and many of us are waking up to the reality that uh, if we're gonna succeed, uh, Institutionally, if we're gonna succeed as a nation, we need to have a more equitable uh, system that allows all individuals to have a fair chance to succeed. And uh, that is something that, uh, in my opinion, a lot of people, uh, at least the people that I associate with care about. And uh, where the challenge comes is in not knowing exactly how to go about it or how to really achieve it. And I think organizations like AQ uh, are uh, helping uh, people be able to identify the equity gaps. And not only that, but to be able to introduce ideas and programmatic uh, opportunities uh, to be able to uh, improve uh, in their achievement of, 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 this, uh, of these outcomes or whatever. And I, I really feel that uh, more and more uh, that is going to be uh, something that is going to permeate uh, all institutions and something that I think people are genuine in their, in their desire to see uh, more a more fair system, more equitable system that allowed all students to have uh, the, same, the same opportunity. As I always say, uh, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. So if we can really change uh, the uh, opportunities for students to have the same chance of developing and succeeding, uh, that's gonna make for a better world. And that is something that uh, this nation desperately, desperately needs. Wow, okay. Jonathan, back over to you. Your word is grading. I didn't say they were going to be easy. <laughs> Inequity. Elaborate. Well, if we look historically, we know that the bell curve is a very powerful mental model. We know the, uh, the normal distribution is a social phenomenon. It happens in social phenomena. 
but it became a force for inequity when students for reasons other than their achievement or performance in a course got graded in equitable ways. And in fact, I like to define equity as achievement and outcomes indistinguishable by race, class, ethnicity, income level, sexual orientation, all of the big classes. So when you say grading, what comes to mind are a lot of the inherited inequitable ways of thinking, mental models and practices that need to be disrupted in order to more effectively motivate students and more fairly reflect their authentic performance as opposed to uh, assumed performance or because of issues that are truly outside of their control or the faculty members control. Wow, I'm gonna keep doing this. So we're gonna to go to uh, Eduardo Reddy. Yours is adjunct faculty. <laughs> well, that's uh, nowadays uh, is a subject of a lot of discussion because as you know, more and more institutions are increasing the use of adjunct faculties to deal with the economics of the, of the college or the university. Uh, and I really feel that adjunct faculty uh, can add a lot of uh, positive things to the institution if properly supported, if properly treated. Uh, what I find is that sometimes uh, many of these adjunct faculty are practitioners that bring their practice into the classroom and that's very good for the students. When you bring a judge or you bring an architect that is uh, practicing the, their profession uh, into a classroom, uh, that I think uh, has a significant uh, benefit for, for the students. But the problem is that uh, at many institutions, and again, for economic and many other reasons, uh, the adjunct faculty uh, are not treated at the level that they should be. They are like treated like second class citizens. And uh, they are not provided the same opportunities again for professional development, because you expect, uh, the expectations are that uh, the adjunct faculty will be as effective teachers as the tenure faculty at the institution. But um, very often <clears throat> they don't have access to the professional development opportunities uh, that are provided for, for the regular faculty. And I think that's a big, big mistake because I think, uh, uh, you know, the adjunct faculty can be as, as passionate and sometimes even more passionate than the regular faculty in, in teaching with the students. As a matter of fact, many of them are teaching at institutions not so much because of the money, but because of their love of teaching. And I think it's important that we recognize uh, the, the merits and we recognize uh, the opportunities that they provide to bring uh, a different set of ideas, a different set, a different mindset uh, to, to teaching. And uh, they need to be rewarded properly and they need to be especially professionally supported so they can be the best that, you know, that they can. If you were listening to this episode of 
Higher Ed Word Association and you didn't learn anything, then you weren't properly listening. My contestants were, of course, Eduardo and Jonathan. Thank you for playing. Uh, we love Higher Ed Word. I lo you know what? I came up with it and I just keep doing it. I love Higher Ed Association because it puts somebody and really pulls out the emotion of these things without the preparation. And you get to really see what, what those first couple of thoughts are. And when it comes to higher ed, we are so, I mean, not that other industries aren't, but we're so passionate because we are literally affecting the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And you hear that passion come out when you do something like this kind of in an unscripted way. Of course, you guys were not prepared for that. You had no idea, idea what, what words I were going to give you. By the way, you knocked it out of the park, just for the record. Um, but, you know, teaching incompetencies that teachers should know in a framework, and Jonathan, this one I'm going to kick to you, that there's a framework that you all uh, use and you have courses for faculty to improve. Talk a little bit about the pathways that a teacher can take to improve their skills through AQ. Yeah. Well, and thanks for opening the question with the notion of competencies. It's the right place to start. You've heard this question before. What should every educator know and be able to do to teach well? That's a very common question in K-12. It's been asked for over a hundred years, ever since teachers had to get a license and a certificate and what have you. 50 states have their 50 different teaching standards. We've got different models. But higher ed had never answered that question for itself. And if you don't believe me, you and your listeners should get an amazing book called The Amateur Hour. The title tells it all by my friend John Zimmerman, who's a historian at UPenn. And he chronicles over 200 years in American higher ed, how research has been prioritized, teaching has not been prioritized. So that was our first task to answer that question. We did it with higher ed. We did it with a deep dive into the literature such that we have a really a good answer that now has been put out to the field and embraced called the AQ Effective Practice Framework, 25 core teaching competencies organized into five uh, very familiar domains of practice. Well done. <laughs> well, look, uh, th thank you. We could have stopped there. I mean, frankly, we could have put that out and recommended it to the field to embrace. But we knew as too many white papers and blue ribbon commission papers uh, happen, those papers live on a shelf and collect dust. So what we said is let's create learning experiences for faculty such that they will be prepared and actually implement practices across those 25 competencies. That became a design puzzle, a wonderful uh, design opportunity. The result uh, was not workshops because we think, although they have their place, sometimes you leave a workshop and the people who lead the workshop uh, cross their fingers and hope they have had an impact. And we said, nice. we, need a, we need a learning design where we have greater confidence. So we created courses for faculty, graduate level, credit bearing courses, 
such that an institution like Miami-Dade will sit down, will talk about their goals, their strategy, will find ways to recruit faculty in large numbers uh, who are excited about the opportunity, enroll them into these experiences, which might take six weeks, eight weeks, might take a year in order to prepare them in all of those areas of effective and equity promoting practice. That's how we've gotten to those stats I mentioned earlier, 20,000 faculty supported, 10,000 certified, the balance on their way. And that's also how we got to the efficacy studies to track the work, follow and study the impact those AQ certified faculty have to show the value. So if you step back and wrap all that together, that's very different from offering high quality services like through a teaching center, which we need, they are key partners in this work or recommending competencies and seeing what happens, but getting really intentional about our our work with institutions. If I may add, what I think yes. is encouraging is to see the excitement of faculty that go through these courses and the pride uh, that they exhibit, uh, knowing that uh, and, and really visualizing the impact that that learning has on their students and how much uh, their students improve in their ability to grasp the content and their ability to put into practice and to have the application of that knowledge. Uh, and, and that is something that is, and I witnessed that myself. And, and that's why I'm such a great uh, supporter and cheerleader for what AQ is doing because uh, it works. And the faculty, frankly, uh, are the greater uh, beneficiaries. And uh, I have seen the impact and the effect of, of, of uh, they're going through these courses and uh, really achieving a different level of quality teaching that is uh, a source of pride for everyone. And, and what Eduardo adds busts so many myths out there. You know, yeah. faculty aren't interested in this. That is nonsense. We see demand through the roof for opportunities to deepen your practice, to have more effect on your students. Another myth. We can't get our faculty to do anything. Nonsense. Through culture and recognitions and incentives, both employment, professional, cultural, of course you can. Myth, oh, does this stuff even work? Of course it does. There's a 40-year literature, and we've got our own efficacy studies. Wow. Well, you guys got a lot going on. There's so much more to talk about. I feel like, um, Jonathan, we've we've got to have you back. There's, there's two too many things to touch on. Faculty are the lifeblood of a higher ed institution. They, um, and, uh, just like any of the rest of us, need to be nurtured and taken care of and developed professionally with opportunity. They're a direct impact on the students. You guys have a direct impact on those faculty members, and I applaud your efforts. And so I want to ask you our two final questions. Jonathan, you get one. Eduardo, you get the last one. Jonathan, to you first. What did we miss about AQ that you want to say today? Uh, there, there hasn't been enough time to talk about your work, but what are, what are any key points we missed? Anything that you want to bring up, the website, anything, classes that are coming up, speaking engagements you have, anything at all? Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's, that's very generous of you. I obviously am biased and think uh, that AQ is 
doing the best job out there in the most responsible and, and trusting way. Um, but I'd actually like to broaden the lens a little bit. Uh, we've had a national commitment for more equitable student success. And we've been going about that as I listened to the talking points, largely focused on access and affordability, and that may be a third around support. And where I think our work goes is to the heart of the Q word, quality. The quality of experience, the quality of learning, and we've got to get quality as firm on the agenda as access and affordability if we're going to reach these goals. When we do, I think we see a professoriate transformed. Before the pandemic, there were 1.5 million instructors in America. We have only begun this work. We're not the only folks in this work, but I want to make sure that every single professor has the support that he or she needs to deliver the quality of education that every student is expecting. Wow. Uh, Dr. Perjone, last question to you. I'm going to amend the question a little bit because we usually will ask folks, what do you see as the future of higher education? But I'm going to add onto that and say, what do you see as the future of teaching in higher education? <laughs> Okay, um, I don't have that uh, magic ball to answer that question. I read but... Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I read your bio. If anybody in the world has the magic eight ball to tell us the answer to this question, it has to be you. Your bi by the way, your bio, your bio is, it almost looks fake with all your accomplishments. Congratulations to you, what you've done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I think the, uh, the future of both higher education and teaching uh, are, are great. And I'll tell you why because the reason why we have named this century the knowledge economy is because knowledge is fundamental for the succeed of cities, states, nations. Uh, we know that that's the most important weapon that any country, any nation can have. And that's why uh, having uh, the opportunity for all kinds of people, the young and the not so young, to be able to learn, uh, acquire new knowledge and new skills that allow them and equip them not only to succeed in careers, but to be more effective citizens and to be able to have more fulfilling lives, it, it's essential. And any leadership at any level uh, that understand this uh, will make sure that uh, higher education and, 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 and learning and, and teaching become fundamental opportunities uh, for, for, for every citizen in, in the nation. So I, I feel very optimistic that more and more we're recognizing uh, that very fact. And uh, we all have to understand that the tools to be able to accomplish that, the opportunities to, are available. It's a question of seeking them out and implementing them and providing that, uh, as we said, professional development opportunities at all levels, so people can uh, achieve their very best. Wow. Well, I'll tell uh, my audience who uh, many are who uh, we know for sure, higher ed administrators, college presidents, uh, this is a critical issue. I would uh, ask you to visit aqacue.org. There is uh, a ton of resources there. 
if you want to improve student engagement, persistence, and close the equity gaps, this is a good place to start to get your faculty up to speed and give them what they need. Up to speed and give them what they need. And maybe we'll, maybe we can tagline uh, that to, to serve students, which is why we are in this business in the first place. So we have to do, we got to take care of the people that take care of the students. I know you would agree. Um, and of course, uh, I, I can't tell you enough uh, and thank my guests enough, of course, Dr. Jonathan Gurko and Dr. Eduardo Padron here to represent faculty uh, and their development. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on the Edip Experience. We appreciate you. Did you have a good time, at least, talking about these things? Thank you, Joe. It's been wonderful. Thank, thank you. you th thank you, Joe. I, I never met a microphone I didn't like. All right. Well, we, we're going <laughs> to we're going to keep a hot mic for you here at the Edip Experience, gentlemen. You've just add up. <laughs>